Hi, everyone, and welcome to Coach's Corner. If you ever struggle with anxiety or depression or have been labeled as depressed or ADD or have any kind of mental illness struggles or labels or just are freaking human and have anxiety and obsessive thoughts from time to time, or maybe a lot of the time, you are going to love today's episode. I heard Dr. Lee for the first time on my friend Sean's podcast, The Model Health Show, and I was just so blown away by both her compassion and her intelligence, and I had to have her on the show. Dr. Caroline Leaf is a communication pathologist and cognitive neuroscientist. Since the early 1980s, she has researched the mind-brain connection, the nature of mental health, and the formation of memory. She was one of the first in her field to study how the brain can change, it's called neuroplasticity, with directed mind input. During her years in clinical practice and her work with thousands of underprivileged teachers and students in her home country of South Africa and in the USA, she developed her theory of how we think, build memory and learn, creating practical guides and tools that have transformed the lives of hundreds and thousands of individuals with traumatic brain injuries, learning disabilities, autism, dementias, mental health issues like anxiety and depression, and on and on. Dr. Leaf's podcast, Cleaning Up the Mental Mess, YouTube videos and TV appearances have reached millions globally. She also has a new book out called Cleaning Up Your Mental Mess, which I got a lot of value out of. Now, I want to tell you something before you listen to this interview. Dr. Leaf is incredibly smart and passionate, and she knows her stuff. And a lot of this stuff is new to us. You know, we're really learning about the brain and the mind. And do you know that the mind and the brain are two separate things? She's going to explain that. So you might have to slow it down. You might have to go back and go, wait, I don't know if I totally got that. I have to go back. But if you really take the time to listen and take this information in, it's going to give you so much more lack of a better word, control over your mind. I also downloaded her app, which I'm going to be using to try out the 63-day method that we talk about in the show. And I'm really excited that we have this kind of information. I think a lot of us feel like the victims of our mind sometimes, like our mind is just running away with us. And Dr. Leaf has so much compassion and wisdom about how we can stop that and how we can manage it. It isn't an overnight thing. It is a process but she has decades and decades and decades of experience in the lab and she really has found what works. So listen up. I trust you're going to get a lot of value out of this interview. Before we dive in, I want to thank Organifi, my sponsor for this week. We're hitting the road again. We just got back from Mexico and we're headed to Miami and then Utah. And one thing that's always in my bag and my carry-on bag, because I don't want to lose them, are all my Organifi green packs, red packs, and immunity packs. So Organifi is one of my favorite organic superfood and nutrient company, and you get 20% off the entire store, your entire order, when you go to Organifi.com slash O-R-G-A-N-I-F-I.com. O-R-G-A-N-I-F-I.com. I mentioned the green juice, red juice, and the immunity packs are so much more. I love those three things because when I travel, I can just pour them in a water bottle, shake it up, and I get so many of the organic nutrients that often I can't get when I'm traveling. I mean, airport food, hotel food. I mean, I can only pack so many avocados and apples and cucumbers in my bag. I always get funny looks from security. Anyway, I make up for it with my Organifi products. So again, Organifi.com slash over it for 20% off. And you get free shipping now until June 12th. So place your order now. You have less than a week left. Again, free shipping until June 12th. And now on to my interview with Dr. Caroline Leaf. Dr. Leaf, thank you so much for being here. I'm thrilled to have you on the show. Oh, it's wonderful to be, to talk to you and to meet you. Thank you. Well, I read your very impressive bio before we started here, but I would love for you to share just a little bit in your words, how you got to doing what you're doing and why you're so passionate about it. Well, that's a, a 38 year journey. This is my <laughs> almost 38 years that I've been in the field now of mind brain research, basically studying the field of psychoneurobiology, which is the so the fancy way of saying I've looked at how what the mind is and what thoughts are and what memories are and what emotions and how they all fit together and where does the brain fit in and what's the relationship and you know what is this whole thing about you know things like stress impacting our brain and our body and I began back in the 80s when they didn't believe that the brain could change. And so the going philosophy of the day in the 80s was that your brain, your mind changed, but your brain was a fixed, basically fixed. So 
every patient that I was trained to work with in traumatic brain injury, chronic traumatic encephalopathy, Alzheimer's, autism, learning disabilities, severe trauma, sexual trauma, all that kind of stuff that I was trained to work in, it was basically we were told the brain can't change, so you have to teach your patients to compensate. And I remember sitting through one of my neuroscience lectures, and neuroscience was very, very early. It was like it's in its infancy in those days. And I remember saying this can't be right because every day we change. We change moment by moment, and that's our mind. Our mind's experiencing life, and our brain is an, is an organ that we're just using. So obviously if our mind changes, our brain's changing. And because we change as humans and we're always changing and our body's changing and so on, and they said to me, okay, well, that's a ridiculous question. I actually did a TED Talk on this. And I said, well, tell me the most challenging field, and I will go and do research in that and show you that I believe that this is the correct way of looking at things. And they said, okay, take traumatic brain injury. There was literally no research on that in the 80s. And I did. And I worked with people that had been written off by doctors as vegetables and that had been in comas for like two weeks. And I started doing some of the first neuroplasticity research in my field. And this is before fMRIs, when we only had CT scans, you know, so we couldn't, you know, we couldn't really see see the, the, the brain changing in real time. Um, and that that really by the mid 90s it was accepted that the brain could change, and that was that was basically neuro, that's basically neuroplasticity. So I began in in that well I, my, my research involved trying to find ways of helping people to understand their mind and understand how they could literally use their mind to change their brain. So if someone's manifesting with all kinds of emotional stuff and learning issues from a traumatic brain injury, how could you use your mind to change that? and deal with, you know, improved functioning and so on. And so I showed in my early research that using mind-directed processes, which was the birth of the five-step neurocycle, which is in this book, and the birth of my theory, which is called the geodesic information processing theory, I wanted to find ways that my patients could how could they direct their mind to direct the changes in the brain to change their life? And I found that from my first lot of research that you could improve 30, I showed I showed an improvement, sorry, of 35 to 75% in their social, emotional, cognitive, and intellectual functioning, which was unheard of at that time and even still today. And I've continued over the years doing research, doing clinical trials. I worked for 25 years in clinical practice, working intensively um, also in South Africa at that point. I would work, I work three days a week in addition to my my private practice in the very a very challenging apartheid era, which was absolutely shockingly terrible. And I worked in all the areas that were really affected, the, what they called the township areas. So I, I spent most of my working career working with underprivileged and people that had been had things that didn't have the chance to really learn and and get the emotional support that they needed. And that and did a lot of in in field behavioural research. And I say all that to say is that most scientists work in the lab. I spent a deep intensive dive working in the field with people trying to understand mind and brain. And so I come to the table with research, clinical and very intensive behavioral research or in-field research working with people. Mm-hmm. And my my books that I write now, all the conferences, everything I do, my podcast, everything is taking what I've learned and bringing it to people to help them to realize that, hey, every human has a mind, every human has a brain, and every human has the right to understand how to manage their mind to be able to direct the changes in the brain and the body, because it's mind to brain to body. Yeah. All three different, there's a very specific sequence. It's something that we just don't speak enough about. And the narrative, as you and I both know, the current narrative for mental health is is horrific. It's, it's mm-hmm. all about, okay, you are anxious or depressed, so therefore, I mean, you and I were talking about this just before we started our uh, uh, taping, and you suddenly you have a disease and you've got this brain disease and no one looks at your narrative, you know, that's like it's pushed aside and that's wrong. So I've been a very, become very much an advocate for mental health because I watched this over 38 years of my career. I watched this change from the focus from saying the brain couldn't change to being obsessed with the brain and making everything about the brain. And even though we've, it's wonderful, the advances, and I'm part of that research, we have to be careful of saying, okay, my brain made me do it. And we live in an era where that's pretty much what's happening. And that's created terrible stigma and it has not helped the problem. It's actually made it worse. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, so that's kind of a big walk through what I do, what I do, why I do what I do, and why I still keep doing research, keep doing clinical trials to try and help people really understand this is my mind. This is what I can do. It doesn't replace therapy and coaching. I mean, you're a coach, these therapists, it enhances it. It actually mm-hmm. just provides the, like I always say, it's like Amazon. It's an 
incredibly, Amazon's an incredibly efficient delivery system. It works. And they, but they deliver anything. That's what the system is that I've developed over these 38 years that has been based on such intensive scientific research. It's a delivery system. Into that, you can put any coaching technique, any therapeutic technique. But the bottom line is that you live with your mind. You wake up, you go to sleep with your mind, you wake up with your mind, you dress with your mind, you work out with your mind, you're having this conversation with your mind. Your mind never stops for even three seconds. So every single human needs to understand how to manage their mind and, and drive that as we, along the support of, of mm. loved ones and therapy and so on. Mm. Such incredible work, such meaningful work and, and such game-changing work that you're doing. So I want to just go back to a couple things. Could you explain, so people really get it, the difference between their mind and their brain? I'm so glad you asked that question because that is so absolutely significant and and core in and, and giving people, empowering people to change. And what I saw, and just to, just to give you a big picture, and then I'll zoom into the difference. I saw with my re- recent research. I've seen this over the years, but I, it's in my book. I put it into my um, into this most recent book, cleaning up your mental mess. I put a very simple summary of my clinical trials in the first little part of the book, and then its application in the rest of the book, as you've seen. But I indicate there that when people are empowered to uh, feel that they've got agency and autonomy, that's when they're able to look at the toxic issues and things that are going on in their life and, don't, and to stop seeing them as barriers and to start actually then managing to get through them. And that's the pathway to empowerment. And it begins with understanding whether that the mind is not the brain, that they're separate. Because if you're told that, okay, I'm feeling anxious, We've just, going through a pandemic, anxiety has tripled, which is totally normal during an adverse circumstance, but it's been made out to be that there's suddenly this other, another disease, as though we've also not only caught COVID, but we've caught anxiety. And it's it, anxiety is not an it, like COVID's a very specific it. Anxiety, depression, these are not it's. They are warning signals, they responses that humans will have to adverse circumstances. And everyone experiences anxiety and depression, obviously, at different degrees. So like during this COVID era, it's uh, this pandemic, we have, anxiety has tripled, which basically means that people, if you think of a sliding scale from from zero to minus 10, and, or zero, and, and on the one side and zero to plus 10 on the other side, you essentially what's happening is that anxiety is most of us experience and uh, anxiety in sort of the must minus four plus four range that's totally normal but when something major adverse happens in our lives we slip down the scale in the minus direction and it's it's not that we are getting diseased it's that we are battling to cope with what we're going through and so and because our mind experiences stuff and it goes through our brain this is where the distinction comes in we are going to have obviously have a physiological response so I just wanted to lay that out there first that we that we get more comfortable with things like anxiety and depression. And in terms of understanding the brain-brain distinction, the, the brain is your physical. So if you look at yourself now, you had your brain and your, in your you can't see it, but you know it's inside your skull and um, and you, you've got your body. You can see your physical. That's about 1% to 10% of who you are. The other, the if, if you, the difference between you and I and, and your audience listening and a dead person is the mind. So the brain and the body are part of your physical. The mind is this incredibly huge 90 to 99% part of you that actually drives, it switches on the physical. So when someone's dead, the mind's no longer operating. So the mind is this, is this very powerful force that is energizing, switching on, driving. It's like the engine room of, of the brain and the body. So we can hold up a dead brain and we can hold up a we can we can scan a dead brain and we can scan someone who's alive and it's you know the, obviously the alive brain is doing something and we can actually see that from from the different types of scanning that you do the t- different types of technology like if I do I use QEEG technology a lot in my work and if someone's dead you're not going to see the energy moving through the brain but if someone's alive you're going to see all these brain waves and so that's that's an easy way to kind of visualize it so your mind is this energy force and on a psychological level, it's our ability to experience life through our ability to think and feel and choose. So mind is our thinking, feeling, and choosing, and it's got a physics component, which is basically gravitational fields and electromagnetic light forces and what, what's very interesting and it's very complex science, but essentially we know that we don't float around because of gravity. We know that we live in gravitational fields. That's very understood by everyone. 
but not everyone realizes that we also have unique gravitational fields surrounding our body and moving through our body. Yours are slightly different, well, not slightly different, yours are completely different to mine. There's a whole electromagnetic force and photons and everything moving around your body, and a dead person doesn't have that anymore. So once you're dead, that goes away. And that's what you pick up with an EKG, which measures your heart, and the energy in your heart, and a QEEG, which measures your brain waves. And all these, when we see responses on, on technology um, in the body, when as someone who's alive, that is that is showing this energy force of mind. So it's a big, it's huge. It's how you, it's your front line of how you experience life. So the easiest way to summarize this is you think of life, the environment of life. You wake up in the morning and you're waking up into your life, your family, your job, your work, your where you live, everything you're exposed to, your beliefs, your culture, your religion, whatever you do. All of those are experiences that you're having in your waking hours. And those experiences you are processing through your mind, through the think field choose, and through all these gravitational fields and electromagnetic light forces and whatever. So it's kind of like they grabbed by the experiences grabbed by those and the, by the, the mind think field choose and these gravitational fields. And then it's pushed through the brain. And then the brain, then as 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 this energy field is of the experiences pushed through the brain, the brain responds electromagnetically and neurochemically and genetically and it's the, the experience is converted into little um, vibrations inside protein structures that group together to form tree-like structures in the brain, which are called thoughts. So the mind makes a thought or builds a thought, or you, with your mind, build your experience into your brain as a physical protein structure. And then the brain immediately sends a message to every cell of the rest of the body, and there's about 37 to 100 trillion cells, to actually then put like an imprint of this in your DNA. And that's why we have our body memory. That's why when people go through trauma, the, you, they talk about the, you know the somatic memory and how you know things like yoga and movement and things can help to to process trauma. And how when you recall an event, you know you get this whoosh of memory. Then you get this whole physical experience because of the fact that the 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 um, experience of life, the experiences of life, are built into the brain and the body, and in a third place, in the gravitational fields of the mind. So we're surrounded by our memories. They're embedded in our brain, and they're embedded in our body. So it's a very big experience. It's a whole mm -hmm. psychoneurobiological experience. And I know that's kind of technical, but when you understand that, then the next step is to think, okay, well, if that's the case, what level of sort of control do I have? And that's where that's where my work comes in a lot, is that um, we 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 have this ability to think, feel, and choose. So we have a what I the simplest way to explain incredibly complex science is I talk about the messy mind and the wise mind, and the messy mind is at the front line. It's what we are using as we wake up, and you know you're listening to this podcast now. The messy mind starts first, and it doesn't always make a mess, but the messy mind is very hypothetical. It's, it's, it works on hypotheses and experimentation because you can't control events and circumstances or people. You don't know what's coming up in the next second, the next minute. So it's all kind of anticipated. And sometimes we get it right and sometimes we get it wrong. And then we've kind of got to do this repair process. And that's very, very normal. But in doing this, trying to process life with our messy mind, it can sometimes be very challenging because we have toxic environments and we have toxic people and toxic things that happen to us. And, you know, we get into patterns that from, we always have patterns because we maybe were abused in childhood or we're in a terrible marriage or had a terrible boss or bullied at school, or all the horrible things that can happen in life. And each of those has been wired in and is part of your long-term thought storage because all the memories are built onto these thought trees and those influence how you perceive life. And so each new experience is very influenced by existing experiences and an experience is inside these thought trees. They literally look like trees in the brain. You imagine a tree with roots and branches. The roots and the branches of the thought trees in your brain are your memories. So one thought like one tree has many roots and many branches. One thought has many root memories, which is the origin, the story, the bullying, the the abuse, the pandemic experience, whatever, the source. And then the branches are the your interpretation, how you've perceived this, how you've looked at this, how you now think, feel, and choose about yourself in relation to this. And then all the roots and the branches form the base of how you show up in life. So understanding the mind-brain connection leads you to understanding what thoughts and memories are and leads you to realizing, okay, well, I'm building these in response. If I'm building these 
how can I look at what I've built and how can I change them? Mm. And that's the core of my work as well is that you can you can actually look at what you're thinking by looking at your behaviors and your emotions and your perspective and your body signals. There's four basic ways you can look at these. And then you can become a thought detective and track backwards. So it's very – and that's where the empowerment issue comes in. I started this answer by telling you that people can feel like they've got agency again because in my work and I'm, and I'm sure in your work, a lot of people that reach out to you feel so hopeless yes. and feel so unempowered and that's the message to say hey you feel like that but the truth is that's in your messy mind you have this wise mind this wise mind is this internal core wired for love optimism bias that is part of every human design mm. it's part of our nature and it's like if someone comes to you and asks you for advice and you give them advice so easy to give other people advice but not <laughs> to give ourselves that's your wise mind our wise mind's operating now as we talk about these things that are quite complex and and philosophical and and also practical we're using our wise mind so everyone does have a wise mind and a messy mind the messy mind's how we experience life the wise mind's this internal wisdom that we have and then all of that converts into this whole physiological reaction that I've spoken about in the brain and the body mm. all of that can be controlled and that's not we spend enough time talking about it but that's yes. what I teach yes and this is I'm so glad we're talking about this because as you wrote in your book there's a mismanagement of mental health and you even talked about for example, in Australia, the usage of antidepressants went up by 352% between 1990 and 2002, yet there was no observed reduction in rates of anxiety, depression, or addiction. So once again, we're in a health system issue where we're just throwing a label and throwing a medication at people and really disempowering them instead of teaching them actually how to use their mind so that they don't feel so hopeless and helpless. And I'd love you just briefly to chat about the, the, for lack of a better word, dangers of getting a label. And especially to people who have been labeled as OCD or anxious or depressed. Can you speak to how we can actually move beyond living as that label? I'm so glad you asked that question. You're asking all the all my favorite questions, oh. and they, but they're so important, though, Christine, because um, a label initially, you know, when you feel like your life's out of control and you're having panic attacks and you're excessively anxious or you're so depressed that you can't get out of bed and your life's just non-functional, you know, the extreme states, getting a label initially is comforting. I don't deny that, not for everyone, but for a lot of people. But once you've had the label, then there's this feeling of, oh, now what? What does it really mean? So what the research shows is that getting a label actually locks you in and makes it worse. So the whole sort of flow or sort of not flow, but the whole sort of attitude recently in the last few years has been let's destigmatize mental health. Let's talk about mental health. Now, that's fantastic. Let's do that. But they've done that in the way of accept the label as a disease. So no one criticizes you if you have or thinks you're crazy. If you have cancer or diabetes, it's a fact and you take your medication. So they've tried to lump, destigmatize by saying, okay, let's give it a label. Let's give it a medical label. So it's almost as though your, your pain and heartache and narrative has to be subsumed into a medical disease label to be validated. Mm -hmm. And that's where the problem comes in. And that's what's really been the move for the last 45 years. You know, as we got very neuroreductionistic or very focused on neuroscience, the brain and that kind of thing, it just seemed like, oh, wow. The brain is the organ of of mental health, so therefore the brain is it, and, and brain and mind became one thing. So they don't didn't they now don't really separate it. Whereas in the eighties they did, and that's the big part of the problem that leads to labeling. Because if your mind and brain are seen as the same thing, and if you see any problem that you're experiencing emotionally as a disease, like a symptom, cancer has symptoms, or diabetes has symptoms, then anxiety has symptoms. But what are the anxiety symptoms of anxiety? Anxiety. And panic attacks, mm -hmm. <laughs> you know. So there's a circum, circ the sort of weird kind of circular logic, Ill illogic, I should say. So what the research actually shows is that this is increased stigma by labeling people. It has increased stigma because it's made people feel like they're different. Now let's talk about the pandemic for one quick moment. Let's say that you've lost someone, you've lost finances, you've been isolated, you're an 18 to 24-year-old, which is the age group that's been most affected in terms of depression and mm. and so on, and anxiety, because they just don't have the context of, well, maybe we'll get through this. When you're older, mm. you have more context. And they get told, they, so they're really panicking, they go to the doctor, they get told, you have an anxiety disorder, you have a neuropsychiatric brain disease. You're already feeling terrible. 
Now you yeah. get told you've got something else wrong with you. So it's like, it's, it does, it's adding fuel to the fire, but it's not giving any explanations. And as humans, we need explanations. We need to understand why. We're very curious and we are very intelligent and we quite brilliant. And so every we instinctively know that if I show up in a certain way, there must be a reason. That's why if someone hurts you, you say, why? You know, mm. we, always, we tend to ask why. So when you when you get a label, you're not going to get the why answered because the why is, oh, you got anxiety. Now what? It's not an it. I can have 10 people sit in front of me now diagnosed with clinical anxiety and and I would and each of them if I sat down with each of them and got into their narrative they would be totally different stories and that's those stories are the sources of why they're feeling like they feel today in in this particular state or whatever so and it's not going to help by saying oh you have clinical anxiety well all you've done is pretty much just chop the head off the weed so if you're going to weed your garden you can't just chop off the head you have to pull it out by the roots and that's what's not being done in the current model yes right. therapy does yes therapy but you even so you've got to you can't just have talk therapy for example you ha you can't just do cbt you can't just do yoga you have to do everything mm -hmm. because of what i said in the beginning is that you it's a mind brain body psycho neurobiology memory is stored in trees in three places and you can't just think i can address trauma through just the body i've got to address trauma through body brain and mind and you know you can't just say okay and that's all the narrative the whole person's narrative has to come up and once a person finds the source which is the roots of the trees which is the you know the narrative i am like this because of it's generally insidious because it's got links to oh that's that's linked to that and that's linked to that and that's think of the redwoods that the incredible root system that they're so famous for which enables them to be such big trees that's kind of what our brain is like every root experience is insidiously affecting other areas of our life and the more we un have an unmanaged mind the more we we literally have this insidious root system of the things of our life affecting other parts of us and affecting how we see ourselves and our perspective and you know that increases layer upon layer that's not a disease. Mm. That is how it's wired into the brain. So what we have to do is literally rewire our brain. And how? And when I say we rewire our brain, the we is our mind. You and me with our mind, we have to look at ourselves. We have to stand back and observe ourselves and say, okay, how am I showing up? There's a pattern of depression. There's a pattern of anxiety. There's a pattern of frustration. There's a pattern of broken relationship, whatever. All these, all of the above. We've never just got one. And take the like prioritize one, you know, which is the most dominant thing at the moment and start dealing with that in a very, very organized, systematized way yourself with your mind management because you're the one that wakes up with yourself in the middle of the night or you've got to live with yourself during the day you, you can't you've got to you you man you've got to live with your mind so you've got to have mind management and then you need the support of coaching therapy counseling family etc etc because mm -hmm. you can't do this alone it's not about you it's about you in the world so that's the kind of philosophy mm. so a label doesn't actually fix anything nope. a label has been scientifically shown to increase stigma slow down healing and in fact just before the pandemic hit a very interesting trend had been observed it's been written about interestingly enough in more in the economics literature than it has in the psychological literature um, and that is the deaths of despair and federal data was released in 2014 and 2015 they've been tracking population statistics and what's been happening and for decades people have been living longer because of the advances in medicine and technology but in between a trend started change the trend started changing in 96 and long story short short people are now dying eight to 25 years younger than they should mm. from preventable lifestyle issues and if you have a label you can add literally add the extra 20 years onto that so if people so in other words as soon as you have a label a mental health label you get into the 25 bracket society so you your chance of dying 25 years younger than you should has just increased dramatically wow. that is terrible in this advanced day and age and people aren't speaking about it enough and why is it happening it's preventable lifestyle issues and as soon as you stay lifestyle people think okay drink, drink the green juices and go and do yoga and exercise mm -hmm. absolutely but that's only part of it you also have to address the system the environment yes. that we live in what are people telling me about me people are telling me that if i have anxiety there's something wrong with me no there's nothing wrong with you it's not it's not a being it's a, it's not a, a being it's a doing 
Right. You, 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 you do, you know, you're going through something. It's not who you are. It's what you're going through. You know, you, you're breaking down the stuff. You're going through stuff. So um, that's kind of where the label comes. Mm-hmm. And addiction is another classic example. I mean, addiction has been labeled as a disease. And addiction is not a disease. Addiction is a coping mechanism. Yep. It's someone's drinking, not because they are addicted to the drink, but because they are don't know how to deal with the pain. They're looking for a way out. Yeah. And most people age out of addiction anyway. So, you know, it's really, we've got to look at things very differently. So labeling is really, really does mm. not help very much at all. Mm. Mm. And I know everyone listening, you've heard Dr. Leaf talk about the mind management, and we're going to get to the five steps of her neurocycle in a second. Uh, and so you have some actual practical tools you can take away. But before we do, I'd love you to speak a little bit about the non-conscious mind, because I think this is something that people really don't understand and they don't understand how valuable this part of the mind is as well. You definitely are asking all my favorite questions and you're really topping, you, Christine, you're touching on stuff that's so important. Yeah. Okay. So you heard me say the messy mind and the wise mind. So the messy mind is that experimental mind, the wise mind is this inner core, and this is where we tap into the non-conscious. So people have heard about the conscious mind. That's very commonly spoke about. The conscious mind is super easy to understand. It's the part of you that's operating when you're awake. So your conscious mind is working now. But your non-conscious, and I'm saying N-O-N, not unconscious, non-conscious, N-O-N, non-conscious mind is the most intelligent part of you and it operates 24-7. It's your driving force. It works at quantum speeds. It's beyond space and time. It is where all your um, thought trees with their memories, which are all the experiences you've had from a certain point in the womb to the age you're at today, that's where they are pretty much cooking. That's where they are. Imagine a massive forest that's infinite and there's all these trees that represent your life. And that's the non-conscious mind, which is what we call uh, the, the the way I describe it in my work and, and the work of the sort of the scientific field is that it's dynamically regulated. So you're not aware um, all of it, of it all the time because you only your conscious mind cannot work as fast as your non-conscious mind, but your non-conscious mind drives your conscious mind, influences your conscious mind. So it's everything about you. It's the core of who you are. You're wired for love nature. We talk about that in, in neuroscience. Um, there's a Nobel Prize winning scientist spoke about the fact that our brain and body are wired for love. And we see that in all the studies of, of the brain and the biology of the body is that there isn't any organ right down to the cells, down to the proteins that are actually wired for us to be in a toxic state. Everything's geared towards survival and any level of toxicity is a threat to survival. So like the COVID virus activates the immune system because it's a threat to your survival. A toxic thought of abuse or anything you've gone through is also made of protein. It's made of proteins too. As you build it into your brain, it's built of proteins. Your immune system recognizes that toxic thought in the same way as it would recognize the COVID virus, which is not, most people don't realize that. So you get an immune response in your brain to try and fight that COVID virus because it threatens mm-hmm. your survival, goes against your wide full of nature. So we have this war going on in us and it's driven by the non-conscious mind. So the non-conscious mind is always looking to keep you in a state of balance, keep you in a state of survival. It's the part of you that enables you to actually, when you really tune into an unconscious mind, it's the part of you that says, okay, I got a mess here. This is okay. I own the guilt, the condemnation, the bad words I said, the whatever. That's okay. That's just part of being, that's just part of living. Let's now be a thought detective. Let's now go fix this thing. Let's uproot. Let's embrace process and reconceptualize. I mean, literally land the plane at the tree, get the dig dig up the roots and up in the tree and replant a healthy new tree. I mean, that's literally what the non-conscious mind is driving us to do. Because the non-conscious mind is there to protect you, drive you, everything that you experience is there. It's your brilliance. It's your and in, if you if you imagine the non-conscious mind is this massive forest, as I mentioned. Through the middle of the forest, there's a, imagine a strip of beautiful, perfect green trees. They're just perfect, like the birds are fly, you know, flying through them and water. Just imagine this like, beautiful scene. That's your wise mind. Surrounding that are all these beautiful trees as well, but that's all your experiences. So there's your core wisdom, who you are, your unique nature. And then there is this outside part of you, which is all the experiences of life. And in amongst the green trees, which are all different sizes, the most recent being the smallest trees and the most established being the biggest trees, are these little toxic trees. And 
whatever they look like to you in your mind, and they're very alive, but they are all your toxic experiences right from childhood, the things that you haven't dealt with and processed, the unprocessed stuff, the events and circumstances of life that you can't control, that you haven't dealt with. Now, the longer they're there, the more the brain's immune system is activated to fight them because they are um, they are threatening your survival. So your non-conscious mind is all about hey, there's a cluster of trees that is, that is, that's a, that's an issue from like 22 years now. And this is like going to explode. This is a volcano waiting to explode and you need to listen. So the non-conscious mind sends through signals through the subconscious mind. So the subconscious is the bridge between the conscious and the non-conscious mind. The non-conscious mind is this active thing that I've been telling you about that works 24-7. So right now, at the moment, your non-conscious mind is working with your conscious mind and your subconscious mind. As I'm talking, everything you know about the subject, everything that I'm, I'm triggering all kinds of thoughts in your brain with memories. So all kinds of thoughts are popping up into your brain, popping up into your mind from the non-conscious. So the non-conscious is pushing stuff related to this information that I'm giving you through the subconscious. It's like taking a tree and it's shining a spotlight and kind of shining it through so that it now pokes its little head into your conscious mind and then it goes back and another one comes up and, and that's what's happening now at the moment. So I know that's on, and that helps you then understand what I'm saying. So the, your perspective of the information is guided through existing memories. Let's say it's toxic though. Let's say it's that you triggered and it's a toxic memory that's triggered and it's and you're getting these signals. So, so what the unconscious mind then will do is sending is is push the thought up, but sometimes the thought's too painful to come up and you you, you become so good at consciously suppressing that the way that the unconscious mind will try to restore balance is it will send very strong warning signals. And those warning signals come through into the conscious mind in four ways. They come through as emotional warning signals, so depression, anxiety, frustration, and all the extreme states as well of that. So psychosis, disassociation, all that mm. stuff. Those are just going down the, the negative scale. And then also things like your body. Your body will gut ache, adrenaline shooting, heart palpitations, all that stuff. And then your behaviors, what are you doing? What are you saying? How? You, what are your relationships? How are you showing up? And then your perspective, your overall perspective on life. So you get these warning signals. So the non-conscious mind is sending these warning signals from the non-conscious through the subconscious to your conscious mind. And every time you push it back down, they go down even stronger. Mm -hmm. But then the volcano eventually erupts as a volcano will do. And then you've got hot lava all over your life and your life falls apart and and you can rebuild you can always rebuild but it's always harder to rebuild from it just takes longer but you can always rebuild so that if you understand the non-conscious mind and you understand how to listen to the signals which is what the neurocycle system teaches which is the 38 year developed you know it's 38 year scientifically clinically applied research system it, you teaching yourself to listen to the wisdom of the non-conscious mind. So you're literally drawing on that inner forest of wisdom as well as looking at what's existing that's causing these issues, these toxic clusters of thoughts in your mind, and then doing the work of landing the tree and basically deconstructing and reconstructing the tree so that you can change how the past plays out into your future. So you mm. can't change what's happened, but you can change and shape it how you would like it to play out into your future. And that takes time. It's not a quick fix. There's no quick fix to any of this. There's cycles of the time it takes to build habits, thoughts, memories, it's, it will, to build a memory into a thought tree, turn it into a long-term memory and turn it into a habit, take cycles of 63 days, not 21, which a lot of us think that you know, a lot of the research, I mean, not research, a lot of the, it's basically a myth that it takes 21 days to build a habit. It takes mm. 63 minimum. Mm. And that's so you're going to have to be prepared to do the work of 63-day cycles. In our current era, as you and I both know, Christine, it's quick fix. Give me five steps yes. to solve my problem. <laughs> yes. I mean, the neurocycle is not going to fix your problem in five minutes. You're going to have to work through it consistently over time. So I've done the brain research to say, okay, how long does it take to actually get your conscious mind to listen to your non-conscious mind through the signals coming through the subconscious? And once you find this and you land the plane, I always talk about like flying a plane through the forest and landing it. How long is it going to take to actually uproot that tree and, and reconstruct it so that you can actually go forward and change your life and you know behaviors mm. to change? And that, that's basically what the system of the neurocycling does. Mm. I love this because I think so many people try to do mind management through meditation techniques or breath techniques or, and, and they get frustrated because they don't see it really working. They don't see it creating the results. And what you're offering here is, you know, 
almost 40 years of research into the actual brain, into actually how we can use our mind to influence our brain and actually create change. And to me, 63 days is nothing if it means that my life is going to start being differently because I have a different relationship with my mind and I know how to manage exactly. it better. Exactly. That's exactly the point. And, and you, as you say, manage it better. So mind management is an ongoing process. It's something we should be teaching our kids from very young. Yes. It's something you never stop doing and it's something you get better and better at all the time. And I showed with my most recent research with mind management, you can get empowered to control things like anxiety and depression. You can get it by, by a factor of 81%, which means that you literally are 81% more in control of, of things like anxiety and depression, which means that you get triggered, you feel anxious, you'll know what to do. Mm. And you'll instead of it consuming you 100%, it may only consume you 20%, which is totally manageable. Huge difference, and you can, yeah. Yeah, it's a huge difference. Yeah. So... Well, let's, I'd love to go through the five steps of the neurocycle and everybody can dive deeper into this by um, grabbing the book, Your Mental Mess. But if you can walk us through the steps and maybe, could you walk us through the steps? Could we maybe use an example as we're walking through the steps so that we can kind of apply it a little bit? Like, sure. I know some of the things my audience struggles with a lot is anxiety and especially like obsessive thinking impair with anxiety and going to worst case scenario type thinking. So I don't know if you can come up with an example in any of that to take us through the five steps so people can really grasp it. Yeah, sure. We can certainly do that. Um, two quick points I wanted to say, you mentioned yeah. one of the questions earlier on, you spoke about like the OCD label, because that's yes. any kind of label. One thing I wanted to say, because OCD is really one of those ones that people feel stuck. I get so many emails and so many DMs and questions, and I've done podcasts on that. And in fact, I released a podcast today on anxiety, in, on mm. cleaning up your mental mess. But um, OCD is one of those labels that, that people think, any label, they think that that's it, that they're stuck. And one of the things with mind management is that you're never stuck. You're never the same. It's such a lie. And that's why I hate labels because a label implies, okay, that's who I am. And I saw with my clinical trials and my patients that when we looked at a person's narrative, they would say, I am OCD. I am anxiety. Mm. I am depression. And that's not the truth because you can't be those. They're not it. They're signals coming through from trying to rebalance you, telling you, hey, the way like an alarm is going off or a smoke signal is going off, it's pay attention. They're helpful messengers. And in fact, when you look at them as helpful messengers, and this is part of the five steps, when you look at them as helpful messengers, you influence your neurophysiology instantaneously. So 1,400 neurophysiological responses will start working for you instead of against you, which is powerful. Mm -hmm. So it's like tiny shifts of mind that make incredibly massive differences in how you manage the, the moment. And then just also you spoke about meditation and breath work, and I'm glad you brought that up too, because a lot of the meditation techniques have been extracted from their original sources and turned into westernized packaged things, which is what we're so good at doing. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. so it's so important that when people do do things like meditation and breath work, that they do it within the whole context because they generally are very, very mind management focused and spiritually focused where there's a lot of mind work. But so if you just take out an element of something and you use it partially, um, you're not going to get the full benefits. Like taking vitamin C out of an orange, you don't get the same benefit as if the vitamin C is within the orange, you know, mm -hmm. the whole thing. So meditation, I talk, I believe in it totally, but I believe in pure forms. And I talk about it in the book as brain preparation. Mm -hmm. I also have an app called the NeuroCycle, and it's available on Google and iTunes. And that's really nice, Christine, for people to actually use because I walk you through it. So the two together work. You know, mm. book and app work beautifully together. And we, we, it's very organic. We're always adding new stuff on as well. And there's mini guides on there too. So like if you're having a panic attack, there's a neurocycle for a panic attack or a neurocycle to help your kids with anxiety or a neurocycle to, to deal with imposter syndrome, things that you need like on the spot sort of stuff to help Oh, that's so valuable. Oh, you're doing such awesome work. Thank you so much. No, thank you. I appreciate that. Um, so that's, so meditation, breath work, Essential. I talk about them, but think of those as brain preparation. So your brain and your body are physical things and they are driven by your mind. So you kind of want to switch them on. So it's like putting, you know, if you walk into a room and there's no lights on, you switch on the light and it's maybe not bright enough. So you switch on more lights. I'm in a studio now and I'm, I'm surrounded by like thousands of lights. Well, I'm exaggerating, but, and these, and I can turn them all down. There's different settings and so on. That's kind of what brain preparation is doing. It's, it's upping the, the light uh, in, in your brain. In other words, it's getting it into a resilient receptive state. It's getting all your neurophysiology working. It's preparing, but it doesn't fix the problem. And there's a lot of research that's not spoken about that. A lot of people don't hear about 
out because it doesn't sell things. Mm -hmm. And that is that if you just do meditation alone and breath work alone, that it can bring up stuff. And if you become aware and you don't know what to do with what you're now aware of, you can get worse. Yep. And yeah, yeah, it has a sort of negative effect. And I showed that in my research too. You uh, you would have seen in the book, I showed brain scans of people that in the control group who became very aware because of all the testing that we did, the narrative and psychological and blood and brain and all that stuff. And even down to the DNA telomeres, the ones in the control group that, and it was all random, so no one knew who was getting what, but the ones in the control group, and and I didn't even know, I mean, when we looked at the scans, I wasn't unblinded until I had, I actually looked at all the scans and I had to say, gosh, this person really is not benefiting. And then I saw that they were actually not, they were in the control group, so they got no mind management technique and their anxiety got worse. In other words, awareness created, which is part of what the testing was, created a more anxious state. So you can't be just the way you have to go beyond. So mindfulness, meditation, breath work, you've got to do to prepare, but you've got to go beyond. So the neurocycle is taking you beyond that. So one of the first things, that's one of the first things, it's beyond mindfulness and meditation. But I'm not saying don't use them. I totally recommend. You'll see in the neurocycle, there's always every day, there's a two to three minute and sometimes even five minute little brain preparation exercise, which is all different kinds of sort of meditation, um, breathing, et cetera, coming from sort of very good original sources. Okay, so then you go beyond. But before you start going into the actual work of the neurocycle, because it is a lot of work, you need to you need to get your mindset correct. So the easiest way is to visualize yourself in an airplane and or a helicopter, whatever, or a time capsule, whatever you want, because you are never, ever only in the now. Every now moment is informed by the past. As I've already said, as you are listening to me now, what's already happened is informing how you understand what I'm saying. So the past is influencing you and also you're thinking of the future. You're already thinking of how you can apply this or tomorrow or a situation that's coming up. So every single moment we are in the present, past and future, we time travel constantly. And that's something, so when people say just think of the now moment, you can't do that for very long. It's a very good mm-hmm. deliberate practice to just try and think of my breath at the moment and my body at the moment, but you won't do it for long. Your mind will start moving to present part, and that's totally fine. So that's very important to realize you're going to time travel. And then the third thing to realize is that you have you 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 need to stand back and observe yourself as you do the process. I call it the multiple perspective advantage, and it's this whole thing of I'm in the plane, I'm the pilot, I'm flying the plane or the helicopter and the helicopter time capsule machine because you're going through present, past and future. And it's very messy. This pilot, it's like messy because life is messy. There's clouds, there's rain, there's this, there's that, there's all these things that happen in the environment and you don't know what's coming up and you're kind of experimenting and messy and repair. And that's all good because the pilot has a co-pilot and the co-pilot is the wise mind. And the wise mind co-pilot has direct access to the middle of the forest where all the wisdom resides. I mean, these are just visual analogies. It's just really makes it easy to, to yeah. do this because if you don't set this thing up properly, you won't get the same benefit. And I mean, this is coming from 38 years of intensive neuroscientific research. So everything I say, which sounds all nice and kind of easy and whatever has come from loads, there's all kinds of things happening in your brain and body as you're doing each of these mm. things. So when you do this flying the plane, I've got a pilot, I've got a co-pilot, the co-pilot has this wonderful advantage of, okay, Let's, let's do this, let's do that. They, they're not flying the plane, so they can see around what's going on. They can draw on the context, etc. They can look at the map. They can provide extra information. So you want to train your wise mind to talk to your messy mind. And that's what essentially you you coming in with the two together, You all the way through the neurocycle, you're learning to listen to your wise mind. You're learning to introspect. You're learning to listen to your inner wisdom. And that's something that is very obvious that someone's not doing when they're very reactive. You just have to look at our politicians and you can see there's very little wise mind happening out there. <laughs> when people are in an argument, just think of when mm-hmm. you're in an argument, you say irrational things because you're not listening to your wise mind. And yes. when you slow down and you stand back and take a breath and calm down, you then bring up more wisdom. So that's where, when you approach the neurocycle, you want to always be very reliant on the wise mind. And then you, when you land the plane, so you're flying over and there's this clump of trees and there's all the smoke, which is the depression and anxiety, whatever, there's signals. The most the most obvious signal that hits you is the emotion. It's the easiest one to, you know, it's generally the, the sort of over, overwhelming emotion of, of feeling totally fat and depressed. And then there's the focus on the body and then the data comes, which is the the, the thought network activated in the brain. And then the whole thing comes together and the detail comes together. So there's kind of a sequence. So when you're flying over 
what attracts your attention is that smoke signal, the smoke coming off the tree. And you keep flying over, but now you decide, okay, I'm going to use a neurocycle. I'm going to finally land the plane because I can see that that, that, that smokestack is now on a on – that smoke tree thing is on a volcano and there's it's bubbling. It's going to erupt. I can see the red. And so I land my plane, but I'm not alone. I'm with my co-pilot. And immediately you use the word you. No longer do you use the word I. Hmm. And no longer because – we, as soon as it's I, it's I am bad, I am shame, I am stupid, I shouldn't do this, why does this happen to me, blah, blah, blah. And we start getting ourselves caught up in an emotional sort of hamster wheel. So you land the plane and you very objectively stand back and observe your own thinking. As soon as you do that, the front part of your brain, the executive function, the frontotemporal cortex, dorsolateral prefrontal cortex, whatever, you get all these parts of your brain that the brain waves coordinate, the two sides of the brain start working together. You get an increase in blood flow and oxygen. You get an increase in what we call gamma activity. A lot of other stuff happening too. You get a flow of chemicals led by dopamine, serotonin, anandamide. In other words, there's a beautiful electromagnetic and neurophysiological response that happens that increases your decision-making capability. and Just by observing your thoughts. Just by like just be by witnessing them. Going, wow, just I'm being, really – my thoughts are really worrisome right now. My thoughts are exactly. worst case scenario right now. Yeah, exactly. Just by doing the whole, I'm in the plane, I'm with my co-pilot, mm. messy mind's okay. Giving yourself permission that it's okay to have a messy mind. It's okay to do this. You're not the first person who's done this. Everyone's doing this. Everyone's done some level of gossip. Whatever. We've all done different stuff, but we've all it's not you're not the only person to have experiencing what you, your narrative's unique but right. all of us as humans you've got to level the playing field so you've you know you it's, it's got you've got to you've got to immerse yourself in the mantle of kindness so that's another also part of this standing back and observing your own thinking and getting that brain response is to be kind to yourself and that's why you say hey it's okay the co-pilot said don't worry just land the plane you can't you cannot this thing's going to explode let's land the plane let's find the source let's stop the explosion before it happens or if it has exploded let's fix this explosion. Let's get through the lava, the hot lava pouring out or whatever, and let's sort this out. So you, it's a lot of comforting support that you tell yourself. And you've got to pretend literally that you're giving yourself therapy, that you, know, you it's, 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 that's why I say use the, the pronoun you, not I. And you're having this conversation and you're the wise mind talking. I tell you, this is phenomenal. I would get my patients to practice this and it would shift. It's unreal. I mean, I'd still do Myself, I do this all the time. It's one of the most powerful techniques that you can actually use to get yourself into that mindset. And then you, in that mindset, and I'm stressing this and really emphasizing this because this is key to the succeeding. And then you, so you land the plane with all this kindness, this you language, this co-pilot pilot, this messy mind, wise mind, and you stand back away from the tree. You don't go rushing up to that tree and dive in and try and pull it apart on the first day. This thing's going to take time. And so now you're going to enter into literally like a, almost like, okay, I have now got to set aside 15 minutes or 45 minutes max a day for the next 21 days. And then for the next 42 days after that, seven minutes a day. This is not a big commitment. Really, it isn't. And you're just going to work for the 15 to 45 minutes each day for 21 days. And the work you do are the five steps. So you don't do it all day long. You're just doing it for a fixed period of time. And this is so important because you've still got to live. You've still got to get through the day and do what it is that you do, being a parent, being a mother, father, wife, whatever it is that you're doing with your life, your business, your kids, your fun, you know, life, you still need to get through that. So you don't want to be consumed by this all day long. So you've got to get very disciplined. Mind management is a very disciplined process. Mm. It is a matter of sitting down, okay, I'm going to allocate this time to work on this toxic stuff. And then you sit down and you do the five steps. Um, and I'd recommend that you actually sit down, allocate a fixed time if you can keep it more or less the same time every day and get out, get a neurocycle journal. We've got some great ones being designed that you'll be able to get from our website. In the meantime, you can just use whatever and you start going to the five steps. And the first step is gathering awareness. And I'd use the word specifically gather because gather is you have agency. If you go pick apples in an apple orchard, you are going to choose the apples. Oh, I like that apple tree. I want that apple, not that apple. I like this apple. You gather, you put them in your basket. And I want you to have that kind of attitude in your first step. So first step is is it's very systematic, this process, because that's how your brain works. It works very systematically. And um, so you, you bring in a non-conscious process into, a con into consciousness. So you're working active regulation with dynamic regulation. Dynamic is the non-conscious. And so when you gather, 
you're gathering awareness. So what do you gather awareness of? Think of picking four apples the first day, and then you can always pick more if you want to. But the first apple you pick is, okay, what are my emotional warning signals? And then maybe the first one that jumps out is depression. And you put that in your basket. So literally, reach out in your mind and pick that apple off that tree. And maybe it's a big burning sulfuric acid apple that whatever. Imagine how if you want to like grab it and drop it in your basket. And it's already neutralized by just doing that. So it's not going to burn you anymore once it's in the basket. You see, these are all the analogies you tell yourself. But this is changing. It, 1,400 neurophysiological responses are now working with you. You've increased your resilience. You've increased mm-hmm. your ability to face the stuff and deal with the stuff. And then you literally then look at your behavior. The next thing that will happen is generally it's emotional. The next thing is your physical in your body, that gut-wrenching, adrenaline shot, all that heart palpitation, whatever it is. So be aware of it, like consciously and deliberately. Okay, when I feel this, when I look at this, and I focus on this this depression or anxiety or whatever, however many apples you picked or chose to pick, I feel this heart palpitation. So you start making the association between that that particular signal and that particular physical association with it. And then you look at your behaviors. Like, so how is this affecting my behaviors? And it could be things like I'm withdrawing. I'm just not talking in meetings or I can't. It's just the, my communication sort of, I don't, I'm, my thinking is foggy. I just don't have the same level of clarity or my memories, whatever. One or two things, pick the apple. Don't try and fix it all today, just one or two apples. And then you look at your perspective. Life sucks or I hate life or this, I just can't get up in the morning. I just don't want to do this anymore. And there's no judgment. Everything's okay. Put that in the basket. And then you go to the next step, which is reflect. And reflect is a very analytical, very beautiful word as well. When you shine a white light through a prism, you're going to have the the rainbow coming out the other end. So reflection is a deep process that you do sequentially. You first gather, very organized. Now you start very in a you, still the you way, still co-pilot, pilot, still messy mind, wise mind, still the same tone. You don't ever shift that. Um, you can even put a chair next to you so you're talking to someone. I mean, that's whatever you need to help you make make this work for you. Um, you start the reflection, and that's an ask, answer, discuss. Ask, answer, discuss, which forces the two sides of the brain to work together and starts digging very deep and activates a lot of um, many different things. One of the things is that you're going to get a lot of um, bursts of high beta and bursts of gamma waves from the back to the front of the brain. And you want that because it's going to be helping you dig deep into an unconscious mind because that activity in the brain is the, the forcing yourself to look is your mind working very hard. And then it forces that kind of response in the brain and then your body responds to, and that's good. It means it can be very hard. That's why I say you limit it. This can be very painful. You could start crying. You could feel worse. It gets worse before it gets better because you may have suppressed something for years and now you're seeing it and it's knocking you. So this is why when you do very hard trauma work, and I explain this in the book, I have a whole chapter on the different um, trauma, toxic habits, how to use a neurocycle for all of these with lots of examples as you've seen. And in the app as well, there's a lot of examples. Um, When you do trauma work and you start seeing why you are depressed, it's very scary. And so that's okay. It's normal to feel that. It's it's totally normal. I explain that also in the first part of the book with the clinical trials. My, My subject said the same thing. But then as you go through this daily, that's why you limit the time. It gets better and better. There's certain benchmark days like day one, day four, day seven, day 14, day 21, day 42, day 63, where specific sort of time, like a trigger point, it's sort of, um, highlight points happen where you feel worse than better and that kind of stuff so if you know what's coming up that's the beauty of this what i'm telling you is that if you know what's coming up if you understand the process as you're going through it it gives you more agency with more agency you're more empowered with more empowerment you can face the stuff the third and fourth step are writing steps and i mean i don't have time to go into them in depth but it is very clearly laid out in the book and the app but essentially the first step you use a metacog and that is a way of structuring information that forces the two sides of the brain to work together so you don't write linear you write in a pattern and it's quite a specific pattern Um, there's a lot of leg room wiggle room within it but it forces even more depth of activity between the two sides of the brain which means that the mind is working harder because the mind makes the brain work the brain doesn't work without the mind. The mind's forcing the brain to work and brings the body involvement and that kind of stuff. And then the fourth step, so the third step with the metacog is kind of messy. You just kind of dump. It's like a brain mm-hmm. was vomiting these thoughts on your page. And then the fourth step is you're kind of organizing it. So you might just see, oh, I, yeah, like it's just, you're writing all these words all over. And there's just like words and, and, and sentences and phrases and things that make no sense. And then the fourth step, you start 
trying to make some sense of it and you start it's called a recheck and there you start okay is there some kind of pattern here where the triggers what is the potential antidote can i how am i looking at this could i see this differently you will not find it on the first day i keep stressing that it's a little bit every single day and that's how you powerfully will change this uh, dig out the roots you're dig, literally digging out a little bit of sand off the roots eventually you start exposing the roots and um so then the and then the fifth step is is you stop the work with a little very positive action. The active reach kind of closes the cycle. Very important that you don't strain the brain too much because the brain's very limited in energy and this is very hard work and you need energy for the rest of the day. So you've got to, trauma work needs to be and detoxing needs to be limited. So you an active reach is like a full stop in a sentence where mm-hmm. you look at, okay, I've done this today and this is my, and, and maybe you're, and you just create a, a statement and maybe a little visual. So it might just be, okay, I'm depressed I'm not depression. I'm depressed because of something, and I'm finding it. That mm. could be your, your active reach. And in the in the app, I have a little active reach reminder where you can type it in, and it pops up to pop up seven times because the research shows if you consciously read something seven times in a day, it helps you to discipline yourself not to ruminate and mm. overthink. So each time you're ruminating and overthinking, you can read your little pop up, and then you can or you can take a sticky note and stick it on your phone or I don't know whatever. You can. There's so many ways you can do it, but in the app, there's a little thing that you can type that pops up like the reminders on your phone and that then helps to anchor you back I did this work today and you could also hang it onto a visual image like imagine a white rose or something mm. and that creates a whole different neurophysiological response in the brain as well and then tomorrow you come back and you pick up where you stopped and you continue and each day you work through by day 21 you would have deconstructed and reconstructed the toxic looking wiry tree into a healthy tree but it's very small it's not yet a change in it's not a habit yet so it is how you, you you need to now build it into you need to turn this into a habit. So you need to practice using this new way of thinking. So you kind of make a final active reach that's a bit bigger than the little ones you've done each day, and that you type into your active reach reminder or wherever you put it, and you pra- set that to practice at least for seven minutes a day. So for one minute seven times a day, it just pops up in you. It's so simple. It just it's a system. Pops up. You read it and you and you basically say, okay, I'm going to practice doing that. And then you're practicing it by day 42. It's a behavior, it's a habit, and it's happening as it as without you even knowing it's now part of your behavior. You've rewired. So what we're talking about is rewiring. What yes. most people get stuck with is that they don't rewire. They get they don't go through the whole process, so they keep falling back. And that's very often in therapy. You know, they keep talking about the same thing, going round and round in circles because you have to do systematic rewiring. And this is basically how you do it. Then last thing I'll say, because I know it's the end of the interview, but very quickly, as you practice this, you'll see in the book, I also talk about how to use this to build habits and so on. But there's a carryover effect and they basically, your mind's working every three, it never stops even for three seconds. So as you do this trauma work daily, this very fixed, and we've all got traumas, big, small, we're all toxic habits. So we can, if there's no one who doesn't need to do this. Um, we've all got a mind, we all need to manage it. But as you practice that, it carries over into the day. So even though this is a very fixed system, you can use the five steps in an instant. So let's say now that you are about to go into a meeting, you get an awful email, throws you off completely, you're totally happy, now you're totally unhappy, but you've got to pull it together to do a presentation. You could quickly do a neurocycle to basically calm yourself down. You could do it in, in, a, in less than a minute. So you run through the five steps Instead of the writing, if you can write, write. If you don't have time to write, you do it as a pure visual visualization exercise. You just visualize yourself writing, literally, and like a making a little movie, and you can get yourself back on track, and the neurophysiology will respond. So then you learn eventually over time, like now I'm an expert at this, I'm always neurocycling. I use it for the big stuff daily when I'm getting ready. It's my fixed time for working on traumas, but I neurocycle all all during the course of the day. Mm. Um, it's become an automatic way of mind management. It's pure, It's basically how you self-regulate. It's how you deliver your messy, it's how you manage your messy mind. It's how you get your wise mind to talk to your messy mind in order to direct your neuroplasticity. Mm, I love it. I wish I would have taken a year of this instead of a year of Texas history in, in sixth grade. This would have been so I much agree. more helpful. We, you know, in South Africa and even in schools in this country, I we are trained this in the uh, in projects for over 25 years in South Africa, and you cannot believe the impact and the results, and in this country as well. Yes, unbelievable, phenomenal results. Kids respond to this quicker than adults. So you know, my kids have been doing this since they were like three. You know, oh, so the sooner them. we teach it, yeah, the sooner we teach it, the better. And this, it doesn't mean they don't battle, but they know what to, all the of us tools. are going to battle. Mm-hmm. They have tools. That's they have the, the right thing. tools. That's yeah. the thing. 
Yeah. Well, and this is so helpful too, because, and we'll wrap up in a moment. I know my audience, they have so much awareness and they get frustrated because they have so much awareness. They understand, they understand. All right. My dad left me when I was five. And so I have a fear of abandonment and I, that comes up whenever I'm dating, like they can, they can explain it, but they get frustrated because they're like, but how do I shift it? And so I I love this because this this is a system. Yeah. Mm -hmm. This shifts it. It's true because especially if you've been in therapy for a long time, because I mean, I have, I've had patients as well that would come to me and say, when I still practice I've done the work they've been come from other therapy I know why you like you said you know your dad did this to you whatever what do I do but now you've got to reconstruct that so people get so stuck in that that they don't know how to get through it and then it just becomes kind of just go keep going back to the same pattern you've got to rewire that you've got to make that work for you that's what that's what reconceptualization means people are going algebraically x plus y so x is your life that is what you what you've experienced and, and, you know, why is the toxic experience and they, people are going X, Y. So they're just taking, I want this for my life, but this happened and they stuck X, Y, X, Y, X, Y, X, Y. What you have to do is create Z. Z is okay. That's the issue. It happened. How do I change that and make it work for me? Mm, so that's that. what this system does. It takes you from X plus Y into Z, into Z, and that then moves you forward. It's progressive. Mm. Well, everybody, the book is called Cleaning Up Your Mental Mess. I think I just said your mental mess earlier, and I apologize for that. It's Cleaning Up Your Mental Mess, and the app is NeuroCycle um, that you can go and download. I highly suggest getting the book and getting the app. I I really found the book helped me use the app and understand it even better. So I think it's great to get them in combination. Where else can people go to connect with you? Thank you. Um, well, our webpage is drleaf.com. And then obviously my uh, social media is the best place, Dr. Caroline Leaf. They can just um, find me on social media. And from there, as you know, from Instagram, you can get everywhere. <laughs> yeah, that's so true. Well, thank you so much, Dr. Leaf, for the work that you're doing and for your time today. I can just really feel your passion and commitment to help people get out of their mental prisons in so many ways. We feel like the victim of our mind sometimes. And this is just so empowering to know that we can shift it. Thank you so much. I really appreciate talking to you and you ask great questions. So thank you. Thank you.